Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we have another very special sponsored episode this week in honor of Tyler, who just turned nine. Woo! Yeah. I miss nine. Gosh, do I ever. But this episode is a gift from his Auntie Natalie. Yay! Just proving that Natalie and Tyler both have excellent taste. So happy birthday, Tyler! But listeners, don't forget that you too can sponsor an episode of The Dirt if you are of age or you have someone of age to help you do that. Go to thedirtpod.com slash news and then click on sponsor an episode. Easy peasy. So Tyler, as per your wishes, today we are talking about prehistoric animals. Mm-hmm. And some people. But yeah. And animals. Animals. So we're going to start off with a recent story as far as prehistory goes. Actually, we're cheating a little bit on the prehistory part. But let's head over to New Zealand, the former home of a very large bird indeed, the moa. Yeah, I guess this is all prehistory because animals don't write. <laughs> well, um, yep. Don't write? Yeah. Are there animals I mean, that write? I don't know. Like, ravens uh, get up to weird stuff, so... Well, yeah, and there's some bonobos that can do pictograms, but oh. that's for another. That's for an, well, they were taught them. They didn't like spontaneously generate. Do you know that bees, when they bump into each other, go oh, <laughs> like because bees are midwestern. They <laughs> yeah. vocalize. They go. They go whoop. Oh, when sorry. they bump into oh. each other. Yeah. Oh, can I just squeeze past you there and grab the ranch? For millions of years, nine species of large flightless birds, known as moas or diarnithiforms thrived, throve, thrive, in New Zealand. And then, about 600 years ago, they abruptly went extinct. Their die-off coincided, figures, with the arrival of the first humans on the islands in the late 13th century CE. What? Yep. Dinornithiforms. Dinornithiforms. That, that means fearsome, fearsome bird shapes. Yeah. Fearsomely shaped Di- birds. Dinornithiforms. Yeah. Yeah, dino... Terrible or fearsome, ornith, bird, bird, form, scary form. bird shapes. I get it. All right, that's all. Yeah, I just I'm trying to contribute. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, so the die-off of these scary bird shapes coincided with the arrival of the first humans on the islands in the late 13th century, and scientists have long wondered what role hunting by Homo sapiens played in the moa's decline. So to picture a moa, take an emu, right, flightless bird kind of shaggy moppy feathers. Take that and then stretch it up and out until it's about 12 feet tall with very large, powerful legs. No, no thanks. I mean... You can keep it. Uh, They were flightless, which is not surprising given that they weighed upwards of 500 pounds. Uh, I know. 
So how do we know when humans got to New Zealand, if we are in prehistory? Um, the eruption of Mount Tarawera on New Zealand's North Island in 1314 left a distinct layer of ash. So that's tephra. The earliest signs of humans at Wairau Bar on, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong and I apologize, on the South Island of New Zealand can be found just above that layer, and those signs date to the early 14th century CE. So based on a genetic analysis of present-day Maori, researchers estimate that about 400 Polynesians settled New Zealand at that time. So like based on their, um, based on their genes, we can tell kind of what kind of founding population size they had. And this estimate, as the researchers note, um, accords with oral traditions on the number and carrying capacity of voyaging canoes that reach New Zealand. So, speaking of oral traditions, tracing extinctions of animals or people that happened centuries ago is difficult, but a collaborative analysis of ancestral sayings, or wakatauki, found that the early Maori paid attention to their local fauna and environment and recognized the extinction of the moa that were an important food resource. Because imagine, like, barbecued moa that would feed so many people. Like it'd be like a Renaissance fair turkey leg times 30. Very big legs. Like 30 legs? <laughs> no, the size. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's a bird, not a centipede. Ah! <laughs> oh, we're going to get there. Ah! <laughs> okay, so 400 people colonized their around boat. there, parked their boat on New Zealand, got, yep. got off their boat. Mm-hmm. Terrifying birds. Yeah, there were giant birds. Oh, my Nine God. species of them of varying sizes, but the biggest one was like 12 feet tall. Yep. And they were like, that looks delicious. But there were 400 of them, and, you know, I don't know. Oh, my God. Pro- I mean, I'm sure there were fatalities. I'm sure at least one person got kicked in the face and died. <laughs> fatalities. I mean, this was <laughs> in the past, so. Yep. <laughs> so... After the Europeans arrived on New Zealand, some of these ancestral sayings used moa as a metaphor for the feared extinction of the indigenous Maori people themselves, which emphasizes the powerful cultural impact the extinction of the moa themselves had. So many of these Maori proverbs reveal intimate observations about nature. The link between flowering times and animal activity exposed seasonal cycles, and the proverbs themselves note the abundance of food resources. Of those that refer to birds, a disproportionate number talk about moa, what they look like, how they trampled through the forest with their heads in the air, as opposed to, like, ostriching with their heads I mean, down. I would talk about literally nothing else. Yeah, and I guess they stretched their heads up really tall. and uh, They also talked about how best to eat them, which is what I would be talking about nonstop. And dead. it seems like the answer is, yeah, preferably dead. It seems like the answer is... Uh, pit roasted over a specific type of wood that's native to New Zealand, which I'm sure is delicious. Um, and so now, speaking of eating and the things that come after eating, inevitably we turn to poop and some very cool science. So in a study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PANAS, uh, Alan Cooper of the University of New South Wales in Sydney and his colleagues revealed that they have used copper lights fossilized poop, to reconstruct the dietary habits of four out of those nine moa species. They determined how the moa's extinction has affected New Zealand's ecosystems and considered whether any existing species can take its place. 
So in the past 50,000 years, many large herbivores, which play an integral part in shaping vegetation communities, have become extinct. And for more on this, you can listen to our megafauna fruit episode. By analyzing fossilized feces, or coprolites, scientists can determine what these animals ate and gain a better understanding of the ecological impact of their extinctions. So Alan Cooper and his team chose to study the moa because it was the largest herbivore in New Zealand before humans arrived in the 13th century, and moa coprolites are relatively easy to find, as it turns out, if you're in New Zealand and looking for them. That sentence makes it sound like humans were bigger herbivores bunch of vegans <laughs> rolled up it does make it sound like that but giant <laughs> vegans rolled in and we're like Sup? i prefer coconut oil uh. <laughs> <laughs> so the team examined 51 coprolites found at daly's flat in the dart river valley in south island radiocarbon dating and analysis of ancient dna revealed Adna. that the coprolites yes a dna Atna, revealed that the coprolites belong to at least 22 individuals of four different species. The South Island giant moa, the upland moa, very fancy, the heavy-footed moa, and the little bush moa. Before the moa became extinct, nine species lived on New Zealand, and this is the first time scientists have been able to study more than one species at a single site. When the researchers examined fossilized plant materials, pollen, and plant ADNA found in the coprolites, they found significant differences in the diets of the four species. They were able to create ecological models explaining how all four could coexist near Daly's Flat. So while the bush moa found its food in the forests, the heavy-footed moa restricted itself to plants in open herb fields. The South Island giant moa and the upland moa ate plants from both forests and fields. The South Island giant moa may have eaten low-quality fibrous plant matter that the other smaller moas would not have been able to digest, and the upland moa's diet may have varied seasonally. The team believed that the extinction of the South Island giant moa would have changed the forest canopy and understory, while the extinction of the shorter upland and bush moas would have affected the understory. The extinction of the heavy-footed moa would have caused the loss of herbs that depend on animals for seed dispersal, again, like those megafauna fruits. The researchers found that no living herbivore can fulfill all of these species' ecological roles, and so the ecological changes stemming from their extinction are, unfortunately, irreversible. Well, you managed to make that both very interesting and a huge bummer. So That's, that's how I do. So, <laughs> Anna says in the script that we're going to lighten it up a little bit, Surprising for Amber's section. But now that I know what animals are in it. Yep. There might just be a lot of yelling. This is terrible. No, this is for Tyler. I bet Tyler's going to like it. Oh, yeah. I hope you like this, Tyler, because I hate it. I present to you now (laughs) a very brief roundup of some amazing creatures that, thankfully to Amber, are no longer with us, specifically Amber, today. I mean, I'm not sorry. <laughs> listeners may not know I, that about a week ago, I decided. Oh, I was, forgot about that. There was a um, what is that? A camel cricket. There was a yeah, a it was camel a camel cricket, cricket in my approximately camel sized and cricket shaped in my bathroom, and I um, refrained from showering and gave it some space, and then um, what decided. To it? 
Um, well, I did, I did walk into my bathroom and announce that I was going to put it on the lease and it owed me 600 (laughs) bucks. Um, and then it left at some point. Oh, good. Okay. So I almost got a roommate. I was like, rent's too high. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like for this. Uh, No, my place is amazing. Um, but the cricket didn't care for it. So I'm not the best about this, but let's, I put it in pictures. Oh, cool. Oh, one's a, one's a graphic, like a cartoon, and then one's a very nice picture. So it's not. What is they're it? They're not like wearing, terrible. Is it wearing like a bow tie? What? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> I scrolled down. <clears throat> Let's start with a dramatic piece from Nature Magazine about a little critter called Jackalopterus renanine. Renanie. Jackalopterus so Brianna no because she's amazing yes well this is also amazing in the sense it like awesome in the sense of like inspiring awe and like fear (laughs) okay if you like I are really unsettled by creepy crawly things with entirely too many legs that have been around for entirely too many millions of years Fast forward until you don't hear me talking anymore, I guess. Um, So, folks found a newly discovered two and a half meter monster arthropod. The largest yet discovered. Luckily for everyone, this guy, who is a long extinct relative of sea scorpions, which apparently also exist, um, is limited (laughs) to the pages of the journal Biology Letters. Dear Biology. There... Simon Braddy of the University of Bristol in the UK and colleagues report finding a 46 centimeter claw, which is like two feet long, from a Jackalopterus renaniae, from which they infer the existence of a giant example of this species. <laughs> to which I responded, uh, duh. <laughs> so, although called a sea scorpion if you tell me oh of course i knew that's where the sentence was going (laughs) pedants although called a sea scorpion the 400 million year old beast probably terrorized lakes and rivers and rarely if ever ventured into the oceans okay cool (laughs) we just got well actually by a thing with a two foot long claw i mean i'd listen i sure yeah um pushes up his tiny spectacles so bratty says quote this huge monster lived alongside other sea scorpions and fish they would probably lie and wait when another animal went in front of it it would lurch forward and capture it these things would tear their prey to shreds and then eat the little pieces okay bratty yeah you know is really characterizing this species as really frightening it's just doing its thing I mean, it is really frightening because it's so big and could eat us, but still. I mean, getting a bad it would rap. tear us to shreds and then eat the little pieces. Mm-hmm. And so we've got, like, in this terrifying graphic, we've got Jackalopterus renanii, and then we've got Jackalopterus howley. Um, the little version. Yeah. And then a. And then a really a, weirdly a proportioned dude. With, yeah. Who's like, hey, y'all. <laughs> and, <laughs> He's got one arm up. But the scorpions both have two claws up, so so they're they're like, like, hey! (laughs) And so it's just like a weird rave in this. 
Scorpion rave. <laughs> so this claw was found near Prüm in Germany. To work out My the new size favorite German word, Prüm. Prüm. Uh, to work out the size of the arthropod it belonged to. So arthropod is... Uh, Things seg- with exoskeletons yeah, and yeah. jointed legs. Well, but yeah, so it means like segmented foot. Yeah, jointed legs, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Baby Amber on Quiz Bowl team once answered question. The answer to which was arthropod by saying anthropod. And oh, David Batwell made fun of her. So, y'all Well, guess noticed. what, David? <laughs> she's got a podcast now and she's putting you on blast. <laughs> Um, so to work out the size of the arthropod, not the anthropod, uh, it belonged to Braddy, who is an anthropod, and colleagues <laughs> collected information on other not sea scorpions and ratio between their claw size and body length. This turned out to be relatively constant, leading the researchers to conclude that a creature with a 46 centimeter claw probably had a body length between 233 and 259 centimeters. Or... 333 and 359 centimeters, including the claws and arms, which is about seven to eight feet long. Too long. Pass. Miss me with that. Moving on. Yep. Moving on to Galiptodons. Less scary. These guys actually pretty closely resemble their modern relatives, the armadillo, but they were the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. Oh my God. You could ride on it. Maybe, with, with its consent. They were herbivores with up. massive jaws and chunky teeth to help them grind tough vegetation. Oh, chunky teeth. Chunky teeth. Glyptodonts are believed to have taken part in intraspecific fighting, which is males fighting males for mates. So, hey girl, look how good I fight. Oh no, I died. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm a fossil. That's how that works. So zoologists presume that since the tail of Glyptodon was very flexible and had rings of bony plates, it was used as a weapon in fights. All right, sure. This indicates that, again, Glyptodons must have fought amongst themselves. They settled disputes. No, maybe they waged war against (laughs) the tapirs. Everything else. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, They settled disputes, (laughs) like night court, (laughs) by fighting each other, much like male-to-male fighting... What? Night court? Like, settling disputes. I'm like picturing Judge Judy, but like battling it out with flexible you tails. You mean small claims court? Yeah, what's night court? Night court is that like that like body like sitcom with Judge Judy. Oh, Reinhold. never mind. Well, I just, I thought I, you meant like, I thought you were talking about jousting and you just referred to it as night court. Oh, knight court? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's way funnier than I am actually, but thank you. Ah! <laughs> now I have to leave that in. So male glyptodons probably fought each other just like today male deer, for example, do with their big old antlers. Um, Although the tail could be used for defense against predators, actually the evidence suggests that the tail of glyptodon was primarily for attacks on its own kind. Glyptodon on glyptodon violence? Yeah, tragically. In fact, there's an example of one glyptodon fossil with damage done on the surface of its carapace that suggests that it was clobbered by one of these tails. Using and the physics and is mathematics. The, is the, the shell. The carapace is the upper shell. Yeah. Okay. And it's not carapace? Mm, carapace. Really <laughs> glad I've never had to say that word aloud until now. <laughs> now you know. I would have called it carapace. 
That sounds delicious. It sounds like it's in some sort of creamy sauce. Get mm. it that But it's not. It's the shell of a glyptodon. Or a turtle. Or tortoise. Um, so using physics and mathematics. Ugh. CSI, glyptodon. A group of zoologists calculated the amount of force required to break a glyptodon's carapace. The calculation showed that, in fact, the glyptodon tails would be able to do it, thus hinting at that intraspecific fighting. For this next item, I'm going to do two together because I think they often get confused with one another, including by me. (laughs) We are talking about mammoths, Uh, mammoths and mastodons. Not the band. Which I really enjoy. I love Mastodon. Both are very hairy. (laughs) Both with trunks. Both more or less elephant shaped. But different. First up, we got mammoths. Mammoths. No, don't say mammoths because the the family name for Mastodons is mammoth and it's super confusing. Mammoths. 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 Family, mammoths, uh, mm-hmm. traveled to North America around 1.7 million to 1.2 million years ago, according to the San Diego Zoo. <laughs> Look, their website was really helpful. I know. Though there are some anatomical differences between mammoths and mastodons, both are members of the proboscidean family. Mammoths had fatty humps on their backs. I mean, okay. That likely provided them with nutrients and warmth during icy periods, according to a February 2013 piece in Live Science. Yeah. February 2013 was also an icy period for some parts of our world. Um, (laughs) Mammoths also had flat ridged molars. I found one once. This structure helped them slice through fibrous vegetation, unlike the cuspid teeth of the mastodon. In addition, mammoths are more closely related to modern elephants, especially the Asian elephant, than mastodons are. So modern elephants, get them to the church on time. Again, Amber makes a cool music reference that it's goes soaring Bowie over my reference. Yep. Modern love? Yep. Oh, my God. Mastodons. Mammoth. <laughs> Yeah, family name mammoth. Uh, it's like they were type. They were gonna helping. type out like mammothus, like cuspid teethus, um, and they just like they ran got out of characters, and they're like mammoth. Oh no! But mastodons <laughs> entered North America about 15 million years ago, older, traveling over the Bering Strait land bridge long before their relative, the mammoth, according to the Yukon Beringia Interpretive Center in Canada. They were also more primitive than their mammoth cousins, which is a lot of shade being thrown at them. It just means in their anatomy. (laughs) For instance, mastodons had less complex teeth. They had cone-shaped cusps on their molars that helped them crunch on the leaves, twigs, and branches of deciduous and coniferous trees. So trees that lose their leaves, trees that don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also ate wetland plants that weren't full of abrasive material found in terrestrial plants. So they just like so, mastodons man, that... are chompers, stinky mammoths are grinders. Yeah, so yeah. stinky. Oh, yeah. Hanging they out would have been. Ugh. They all would have been so stinky. I know, but especially stinky, like little like swamp swamp mammoth. Yeah, like my little swamp mammoth smells terrible. Well, blow that up by about six hundred, and that's a mastodon. Mastodons 
were also a bit shorter than mammoths, but both species reached heights between 7 and 14 feet. Two to four Which meters. Which is a range. If you are comparing them to giant sea scorpions. Um, mm-hmm. And both had a shaggy coat that protected them from the cold. So chic. However, mm-hmm. mastodons had long curved tusks that measured up to 16 feet, 4.9 meters long. Mammoths, in contrast, sported curlier tusks. Yeah, so mastodon tusks kind of go straight out and then curve up right at the end, but mammoth tusks just go boop, and they're those like long circular, like they curve okay. much more up. Are modern elephants, like living elephants, tusks, um, do they not naturally grow as long as mammoths? Yeah, they don't grow as long, and I'm not sure why. Are they are they capable of it? Mm, I don't think so, because I think we would have seen it in specimens and elephant specimens that i mean elephant tusks do grow quite long but i really not to the scale of of mastodons and or mammoths and i'm not sure why maybe they just don't need to i'm not an elephantologist but i do oh man want to take a moment here to talk about butt flaps ah so oh mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm woolly mammoths had large flaps of skin under their tails that covered and protected their anuses uh, modern elephants have them too, and I think hippos do as well. They Some have, researchers they have hidden hmm? anuses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some researchers think this feature is to help protect from cold, but it's not certain. Elephants have know? them. <laughs> what did you know? You lose ninety-eight percent of your body heat through your anus. I was I was always told it was my head, and that's how how I why I had to wear a hat. What do you suggest I do about my butt? cover it cover that butt also that study was done by like on people that had everything but their head covered and so the heat that was lost was lost through the head because everything else was covered yeah no that makes sense but also how did they do that butt study was everything but the butt covered were people just walking around in cold weather in buttless pants before we speculate too much on this let's go back do to we names. have butt flaps um, is no, that what don't. my butt is? No, we don't have butt flaps. Are you sure? We have gluteus maximus, and that has and more to do with flap? bipedalism. No. I'm going to send you a bunch of peach emojis. <laughs> <laughs> Some researchers <laughs> think this feature is to help protect from the cold, but it's not certain because, you know, elephants have them, and they certainly don't live in cold climates today, so maybe it's just aesthetic. So the reason I want to bring this up is that it actually what? wasn't known. Oh, besides, <laughs> like, duh. Yeah. It wasn't actually known for sure that mammoths had this feature. We knew that elephants had it, but it wasn't for sure known in mammoths. In fact, researchers didn't know to look for it until someone noticed that in prehistoric cave art, depictions of mammoths often include the little butt flap feature. So it's like a little line. Like, it clearly has, like, because mammoths don't really have, they have the tail, but the drawings would depict this little extra little butt flap. Much of the time, the animals drawn on cave walls are depicted very faithfully from life. Clearly, these are animals that the prehistoric artists saw often on the landscape, not to mention probably hunted, and observed closely enough to put in details like an anal flap. So, someone noticed this on the mammoth drawings and said, hey, I think elephants have these things, so mammoths might have had them too, and then checked it against mammoth specimens that have been found trapped in ice so the soft tissue is preserved and voila butt flap 
Isn't that cool? I'm not feeling great about butts right now. But. Okay. Let's move on to something else that, as far as I know, did not have a butt flap. Did you know that there was such a thing as an American cheetah? I didn't until yesterday. Pretty cool. The American cheetah stood a little taller than the modern cheetah. USA. USA. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we win. Hooray. (laughs) With a shoulder height of about 2.5. now, though. USA. With a shoulder (laughs) height of about 2.75 feet. So that's 0.85 meters. But this is an American cheetah. So 2.75 feet. And a weight of about 156 pounds, which... 70 kilograms however mm-hmm. the american cheetah probably wasn't as fast i mean okay <laughs> it had slightly shorter legs which made it a better climber than a runner Buh. Buh. researchers named it miracinonyx miracinonyx inexpectatus <laughs> <laughs> oh Mira means wonderful in Latin. I remember that from the Aeneid. And asinonyx and onyx come from the Greek words for no movement, based on the false perception that cheetahs don't have retractable claws and claw, respectively. So, yeah, so asinonyx means, means and, yeah. unmovable claw, which is sort of yep. how I view cats, too, when they <laughs> try to make biscuits. Inexpectatus is Latin for unexpected giving the big cat a name that translates into wonderful unexpected cheetah with immobile claws (laughs) usa usa Mm. researchers dated the first known in inexpectatus fossil found in modern day texas to the pliocene between 3.2 million and 2.5 million years ago according to the zoo they went extinct. The San Diego Zoo yeah. again. <laughs> the San Diego Zoo. They went extinct about 12,000 years ago. Yeah. And that's something interesting to think about. And I think a lot of people think of these extinct megafauna kind of in the same category as dinosaurs. Like maybe they get lumped in as like things that were big and aren't around anymore. But there were definitely humans around at the same time as a lot of these species. Maybe not the cheetah. I don't think that humans had made it down as far as modern-day Texas by 12,000 years ago. Could be wrong. But humans definitely would have interacted with the mammoth, mastodon, woolly rhino, cave bears, cave lions, giant sloths. Listen to our Footprints episode for more about that. And much more all over the world. In fact, one of the big reasons why Thomas Jefferson, yes, that one, the presidential one, organized the Lewis and Clark expedition is his obsession with mammoths, which were actually max, which were actually mastodons because they were the ones in the Americas, but everyone at the time called them mammoths. He was sure that they were still, he was sure that there were still living mastodons tromping around the unexplored portions of America. So here is an excerpt from an Atlas Obscura article. For most of his life, Thomas Jefferson was obsessed with mammoths. More correctly, he was obsessed with American mastodons, tree-chewing cousins of mammoths that lived in the northern part of the continent, but at the time, he and the rest of the world thought they were mammoths. He liked theorizing about mammoths. 
He liked talking about mammoths. He liked making his friends rack up exorbitant postage bills in order to mail him mammoth teeth. And for decades, from the mid-1760s onward, he was particularly dedicated to one surprisingly high-stakes activity, convincing a famous French naturalist, uh, who I think was Cuvier, that mammoths were still out there, tearing up the Wild West with their tusks. Jefferson liked science more than he liked politics. He was a fastidious vegetable breeder and weather recorder. He led the American Philosophical Society for 18 years, and he once spent a while re-engineering the plow, according to Newtonian principles. Total nerd. He particularly loved fossils and collected and speculated on them so avidly that he is considered, quote, the founder of North American paleontology, end quote, according to Dr. Mark Barrow, an environmental history professor at Virginia Tech. Like the rest of the country, Thomas Jefferson was particularly enamored with one huge, mysterious type of fossil, the seven-foot tusks and crate-sized jawbones that kept being dragged out of American salt licks and riverbeds. Mammoths and mastodons roamed the United States for millions of years, and when they went extinct at the end of the Pleistocene, they left plenty of forensic evidence behind. They first stampeded into the colonial imagination in 1705, when a tenant farmer in New York came across a molar, quote, the size of a man's fist, end quote. This tooth of a giant was sold, traded, and gifted around until it was famous on both sides of the ocean, and everyone was talking about the huge, mysterious, quote, incognitum, or unknowable, that had dropped its bones all over the continent and disappeared, which is, like, quite the image. Just like, bye! The incognitum slowly became more knowable, thanks partially to efforts of Jefferson and other big fans who sent bits of it overseas to European scientists who could compare them to similar fossils. Experts debated whether it was a gentle grazer or a terrifying carnivore capable of mighty leaps. But for Jefferson, the mammoth and its particulars were more than just scientific curiosities. As the Minutemen took on King George's army, Jefferson was in the middle of a quieter war. He too was fighting for the future of his nation, but it was more of a rhetorical fight, one he couldn't win with blood. So he decided to try bones instead. Huge bones. Bones that would show America's adversaries what the young country was really made of. America! So that was one of the really big reasons why he was um, so interested in sending Lewis and Clark off on their expedition. It was largely, yes, to map out the Louisiana Purchase. But a big part of it was also he, he pulled them aside and was like, bring me back some mammoths. Because he wanted to prove that we still had them making us better than Europe, who didn't have any. So, I mean, obviously he didn't... Joke's on you, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> They're all dead. And now, courtesy of sapiens.org, a story about a man, a mammoth, and maybe the peopling of the Americas. Thank you, robot co-host. <laughs> <laughs> on a cold November day... Uh, in 2017, Dan Fisher, a paleontologist at the University of Michigan, walked carefully in his neoprene waders to the side of a growing hole in the ground, pulling one booted leg from the sucking mud before squishing into the ooze with the other. Nice. Yeah, right? Nice sapiens.org. Fisher was on farmland, now called Mammoth Acres, <laughs> which sounds like a housing development, uh, near his academic home at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Oh, your little mammoth is upset. Oh, my stinky little mastodon. Um, Farmer Jim Bristle dug a drainage ditch on his property and unearthed what turned out to be mammoth bones. 
Bristol stopped his work, found Fisher's number, and gave him a call. Fisher excavated the next day, uncovering a partial mammoth skeleton. The team found approximately 60 nearly complete mammoth bones that accounted for up to 40% of the skeletal mass of one animal. Yeah, so it's almost half of a mammoth. On this visit, his second trip to the farm, Fisher carefully pulled soil plugs from the wall of the small pit. The samples would help confirm whether the when the man well, not whether the mammoth died. <laughs> I think it might have. Oh, it's dead! <laughs> Science! Found it like that. Um, the samples would help confirm when the mammoth died, and pollen would help identify the plants nearby at the time, helping to reconstruct the environment in which the mammoth lived. On the second day of digging, the team uncovered several of the mammoth's vertebrae, part of a scapula, and a number of other bone fragments. Early residents may have stashed this dead mammoth, and based on the time of year it expired, Fisher suspects the creature died fighting another male mammoth. The animal may have been butchered nearby, but no stone tools, evidence that the archaeologists consider the gold standard for linking humans to a place, turned up. Fisher casts a wider net. One that could catch a mammoth. Um, he said, he's quoted saying, humans did other things than make flake stone tools. They didn't necessarily leave one as a calling card wherever they were active and doing stuff. Let's consider these other kinds of evidence, which may, if only we can understand them well enough, be just as compelling as the end. I like this idea of being like, ah, oh, let the mammoths know <laughs> that we were here. <laughs> um, for example, back at the University of Michigan's Museum of Paleontology, where this mammoth skeleton now sits, um, Fisher points out a hole in the skull. So he shot it? Let's find out. <laughs> oh no come along on this journey with me (laughs) humans could have punched through the bone to access the mammoth's brain which contained essential nutrients for growing children and pregnant women i'd like to point out that they probably used tools to punch through the mammoth skull it wasn't just like (laughs) they wound up and kung fu'd a hole in the skull (laughs) it's probably with stone tools punctured Punctured, um, yes. Punched, no. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Sorry, pulp cavities is a gross word. Damage to the pulp <laughs> cavities of both tusks shows how people may have targeted those areas too. Broken bone where the trunk attached to the mammoth's face provided. Did they punch it in the face? No, no, no. But they were broken. <laughs> they punched it in its nose. No. Um. Broken bone, where the trunk attached to the mammoth's face provides more processing evidence, Fisher argues, as do bone fractures that hadn't healed. Because it died. Right. Um, These patterns exist on many skeletons, says Fisher, and could help substantiate claims made in two major debates roiling among archaeologists, paleontologists, and other scholars who study the history of the American continents. First, when did humans come to these lands? And did they precipitate the demise of mammoths and mastodons? Let's find out. Up until the 1970s, the established wisdom held that the peopling of the Americas began roughly 13,000 years ago, but mounting evidence has pushed that date farther back. Many conventional estimates suggest people made their way onto the North American continent around 16,000 years ago. In Michigan alone, Fisher and other researchers have uncovered bones from more than 30 mammoths and 300 mastodons. The bones and tusks, some of which show evidence of human processing, um, which is like they've been butchered, not being like, when you say that to me, mammoth, I hear, (laughs) not that, 
Um, <sighs> these are really great jokes for a nine-year-old. <laughs> yep. Happy birthday, Tyler. <laughs> these bones suggest that humans existed in the region now known as the Midwest as far back as 15,000 years ago. Meaning that they had to get to the coast. Right. Meaning that they had to get there sooner. That. Right. Yeah. yeah. But some scientists, including Fisher, suspect the timeline goes back even further. And now, mammoth drama. (gasps) In 2017, anthropologists at the University of Montreal presented evidence for humans living in the Yukon 24,000 years ago. And in perhaps the most controversial claim yet, published that same year in Nature... Dan Fisher and a bunch of scientists from various disciplines concluded that humans may have butchered a mastodon 130,000 years ago at what they call the Ceruti site near what is now San Diego, California. Many anthropologists questioned the findings, yeah, arguing in scientific journals about the validity of the paper's conclusions. So Todd Brahe, the Irvine Chair of Anthropology and an associate curator at the California Academy of Sciences, um, says, quote, things are more open and in a process of discovery than they've ever been, but we still are constrained by standards of evidence, and that site just doesn't meet it. And uh, this is from a response that Brahe and others wrote in the journal Paleoamerica. Natural processes can cause the fractures that are commonly seen on mammoth and mastodon bones, and the timeline doesn't fit with what we know about human navigation, Brahe says. Humans or their ancestors weren't sophisticated mariners until roughly 50,000 years ago, which is 80,000 years after the Saruti team claims people existed at the site. And the reason this is relevant is because um, before then, there were these massive ice sheets across the upper half of North America. And so the only route down into uh, San Diego, modern day San Diego would have been through these ice sheets or along the coastline via the water. And so this guy, Brian is saying that there's no way that, that people had the, the navigational technology to make it down the coast this early. Um, so there's a very, very heated ongoing debate about this. And until there's more evidence, I think there's just always going to be disagreement, especially since there's a lot riding on the timing of the peopling of the Americas. But how about we wrap this up with another quick roundup of things that will haunt my dreams? Yeah. I'll start with Titanoboa. This relative of the modern boa constrictor which already is terrifying. Man, they're just so big. Well, and squeezy. Keep reading. Oh my God. It could grow up to 13 meters long, which is like 13 times almost three uh, feet. 39? <laughs> 40 feet long. And it weighed over a ton. It lived in tropical regions in areas like modern day Colombia, which is coincidentally where the fossils have been found. Right. Um, I have a cool boa constrictor fact that is not going to haunt your dreams. It's a language fact, which is that boa constrictor is the only animal whose like common name is exactly the same as its taxonomic name, because its Latin name boa? is boa constrictor. Genus what? genus boa species constrictor. I don't think there's any other animal that has that. Although I, you know, maybe like bison, bison. Well, no, you don't call bison gorilla, gorilla. No, you don't. You don't call gorillas gorilla, I mean, gorilla. Um, you do if you are in a cave. If there's an gorilla, echo, gorilla. Yeah, yeah. Or you could do the name of the lowland gorilla, which is 
a subspecies, so it's gorilla, gorilla, gorilla. That's it if it's a really nice. it's a really deep but cave. Lowercase. Yeah, yeah. Gorilla. Gorilla. Okay. All right. Well, that was fun. Let's not have some fun now. Um big old bola. Nope. I uh, can't come up with a joke. Mega piranha. Y'all know what a piranha is? Lots of teeth. They're all like they're all teethy and that celebrity chef tried smuggling um a boatload of them in oh, I don't remember to, that. And through LAX. Oh, it happened like last week. So mega piranha is exactly what it sounds like. A species of piranha that lived around 8 to 10 million years ago and grew to a meter so long. By which I mean mega. Quite large. Next, we have Anomalocarus. Anomalocarus? Anomalocarus. Anomal... Anomalocarus. Anomalocarus. She's stuck. Anomalocarus. Wingardium leviosa? Yeah, it was like... J.K. Rowling. Help. Anomalcaris. Anomalcaris. Anomalcaris, a species of squid. <laughs> Proto squid. Yeah. It lived 540 million years ago and was a really big squid, except that its tentacles had teeth on them. No, thank you. So it had bitey little arms and it was very big. Nope. 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 Oh, good grief. Yep. Next, we have Atercopus, which is the earliest known true spider, meaning that it's the first fossil that we have that had spinnerets that could spin a web, but also importantly was basically a spider-scorpion hybrid and had a tail with a sting on the end, and also it was about a foot and a half long. So, there's that. I want to dress Calypso up as one <laughs> for Halloween. Scuttle, 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 scuttle. <laughs> um, and so, speaking of better cuter things. Cute things like my dogs <laughs> let's have a uh palate cleanser we're not gonna eat it it's extinct the pig-footed bandicoot <laughs> this one isn't entirely prehistoric as you'll see because they have a strong literary canon. no god because they exist in the historic record this tiny plains dweller, hailing from Australia's interior, had long rabbit-like ears, a narrow opossum-like snout, and exceptionally spindly legs with strangely toed feet, hey, which gave it a comical appearance when hopping, walking, or running. As far as is known, since the last living individual was glimpsed, this is sad. As since the last living individual was glimpsed over a hundred years ago, the pig-footed bandicoot nested during the day in grass-lined burrows and emerged at night to feed on grass seeds. Though specimens in captivity enjoyed a more omnivorous diet. It's not exactly clear why the pig-footed bandicoot went extinct. This tiny mammal managed to coexist more or less with people in Australia for tens of thousands of years. Um, most likely, it was the much different farming practices of later European colonists that eroded its habitat and sources of food, and it didn't help that the cats and the dogs that all the white people brought with them made quick snacks of the pig-footed bandicoot, <laughs> and at least those individuals too slow to make a hasty escape. During the 19th century, a few European naturalists tried to study the rapidly dwindling pig-footed bandicoot <laughs> before it disappeared off the face of the earth. One adventurer who went to great pains to obtain two live specimens from a tribe of Aboriginal Australians. And then he was forced to eat them when he ran out of food. Yep. Mm -hmm. And on that mixed note, 
that's going to do it for this episode. Obviously, there are millions of prehistoric species that we won't be able to get to, but for some wonderful prehistory content, I recommend that you, listeners, check out the PBS web series Eons over on YouTube. It's really great, and it does for natural history what we try to do with the dirt. It brings you all the best stories, um, but also with video and animation, so and a budget. Yeah. You know. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Natalie, for sponsoring this episode. Happy and birthday, thank Tyler. You, Tyler. For having a birthday. We will be back in your ears soon with new episodes, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, and wherever else you get your pods, unless it's on Spotify. We aren't there. Nope. You can really help us, though, by leaving reviews and stars at all those places where we are, not the places where we're not. And speaking of places we are, (laughs) we are on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're the dirt pod and all of that is together on our website thedirtpod.com email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com and we put out extra bonus content for our patreon subscribers you can get access to bonus goodies like video content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast and we are going to be trying out some new merch soon so stay tuned for that on our social media thanks everybody for listening we love you Bye. Bye. Say bye. Say bye. Bye. Say to your friends. Say bye to your friends. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.